from the EBKV Studios in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you're listening to Coast to Coast on Brotherly Pod with your hosts, Julia, Anthony, and Dan. everybody to coast to coast on brotherly pod this is the brand new show we've been teasing for a little while here we wanted to have a show that took more of a league-wide perspective uh, on the news and notes from across the league obviously we are uh, mainly a flyers podcast but we wanted to do something a little different so on this show decided to get two of the best to help me out first he is a correspondent for the fourth you may have heard him on sirius xm nhl he is also a frequent co-host of the on podcast anthony demarco's here anthony how you doing not too bad dan how's everything i am doing good survived the storm so <laughs> that is all I can ask for at this point. And our second co-host, she is a staple of this brand. She has contributed to Brotherly Puck. She was the first ever female guest host on Brotherly Pod. She is now the Leafs writer for NationalPuck.com. Julia Kenders here. Julia, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. It is hot, but I survived a storm, so I will take anything at this point. Obviously, we are in the middle of the playoffs. Game two is later tonight. The Bruins hold a 1-0 lead on the series after winning game one 4-2. The Blues came out strong, but Bruins quickly overpowered them and won the game. Uh, It's a bit of an interesting series here. These are two teams that are, you know, very physical teams. Bruins have obviously... uh, swept the Carolina Hurricanes in the conference final. The... Blues beat the Sharks over in the West. It set up a pretty interesting matchup here. I had think there was a really interesting component to Game 1. I think both these teams are two of the teams that have been firing on all cylinders throughout the playoffs. And it's uh, pretty interesting that they're meeting. you got two top goaltenders. you got some good scorers on both teams. A good uh, couple two-way guys. Uh, Anthony, what are your thoughts on the uh, playoffs thus far? Yeah, well, they're very similar teams. I think the matchup between O'Reilly and Bergeron is very intriguing. They're very, they're two of the best two-way centers in the game. And then as you go down the roster, they're they're both physical teams. They have big bodies who play on the wings. And as you mentioned, the goaltenders are going head to head. A lot of them have uh, a lot of experts have Tuukka Rask penciled in as the front runner for the Conn Smythe and Bennington on the other side. Should either the team win the cup? But yeah, I, I just think that they're both physical, defensive-oriented teams, and seeing them clash has really turned into a very um, entertaining final thus far. Yeah, the physicality is the interesting part. You know, we got let's see uh, Tori Krug run him over helmetless, which drew quite the ire from a lot of the guys as a charging. And I watched it a day later. I didn't watch Game One; I was busy that night. But I watched it the next morning, and I saw all the outrage on Twitter. I watched it. What is this? This isn't a charging. It looked fine to me. It was just a big hit. You know, I didn't see anything uh, out of the ordinary there. Uh, Julia, what's your take on the playoffs thus far? Um, Well, I'm going to go off of that hit really fast. Um, I think it's because he did start at the other end of the ice, but he, like, clearly changed his path halfway through. So I don't think it was charging either, but I think it's because he went from one side of the ice to the other very fast and targeted him. But the puck was there. I don't think it was charging. Um... But this playoffs has been, I think it's going to be very entertaining. 
I think it's going to be a fun one because um, they both are very physical teams, and that's the physica- physicality of hockey is just very fun to watch. They both have big bodies on the ice that they throw around, and it's I think it's going to be a good one. Yeah, it's going to be a good series. Uh, I'm wonder how it's going to go. I, I think St. Louis is going to come back with a vengeance tonight. I don't think they're going to take that first loss lying down, especially after they came out strong in game one. So it's probably going to be a probably going to be a tight uh, game number two here. It starts in about 50 minutes or so. Actually, probably because it's on NBC, it'll be about two and a half hours. But, you know, <laughs> we'll figure it out then when the time comes on. Maybe if we roll over and I'll have it on in the background here. But some news around the league. The Edmonton Oilers have brought in Dave Tippett as the next coach. He is a veteran of 1,114 NHL games, six seasons with Dallas, eight with the Coyotes. This comes three weeks after they hired Ken Holland as their new GM and team president. You know, they have a lot of things to address roster-wise and a lot of moves to make. But, you know, if they want to change and they want to change in the right direction, this is certainly a way to do it, Anthony. Yeah, well, when Holland came in, I think everyone realized that the Oilers were going to come back with a pedigree next year, and Tippett's a guy who brings that, as you mentioned, over a 1,000 games coaching. Has been out of the the league for about two seasons now or so, but I think that uh, it shows that Tippett wanted to get back in the game. Of course, he was involved in the Seattle expansion franchise uh, management group, but uh, coming back, he, it's not like they paid him a, a lot. You know, he's making less than $3 million, and we've seen firsthand with Alain Vigneault what coaches are going for these days. And, uh, yeah, I think Tippett is going to breathe a, fre- a breath of fresh air in that locker room. He's known to be a defense-oriented coach, but I think he's very good at adapting. He's well-renowned for his success with that Coyotes group in 2012 that went to the conference final against the Los Angeles Kings. So I, I think that given with a team that has as many tools and weapons as Edmonton does, I'm really intrigued to see what a veteran like Dave Tippett could do behind the bench. Yeah, uh, you know, when I saw what he was making, which is less than $3 million, I was like, I don't think that's a number that would put me behind that Oilers bench. You need to do a little <laughs> bit better than that. But, uh, you know, he took it. And there are a lot of pieces there that can make, you know, make good moves, make it happen. You know, you got McDavid and Dreisaitl. You know, Nugent Hopkins is great, but they are weighed down by some big contracts. You know, Milan Lucic is making $6 million for four more years, and um, their defense is a bit of a mess, you know, money-wise, but there is enough pieces there where they can make some moves, and now that they seem to have a direction for the first time in God knows how long, uh, maybe they're going to make some noise this upcoming season. Uh, Julia, your thoughts? I think that they definitely need to add a little bit of depth because they have pieces. Um, and I think that, that Tippett's the person to do it. I think that he's going to be the person to get it done. Um, he is more of a defensive-minded coach, which isn't a bad thing. Um, I think that he that the Oilers have some holes in their defense, and he can fix those up pretty fast, I think. Um, I'm excited to see what he's going to do for them because they've been needing a coach for a while. They've had what, eight coaches in, like, 12 seasons? Something like so, that. Yeah. So, hopefully he's the real deal for them. Yeah, and the biggest spot for the Oilers that is going to need to be fixed is their goaltending. They have uh, Miko Koskinen signed at 4.5 for three years, and they have Anthony Stolarz. Uh, listen, I love Anthony Stolarz, but that is not going to be the duo 
that's going to win you much from from this team, and especially with the weaker defense that they have. They got to make some moves, and they're probably going to be one of the bigger players this summer. Again, they they got they do have a bit of cap space, or uh, just short of eleven million dollars in projected cap space. As of right now, without making any moves, if they're able to dump a contract or two, uh, they could make some noise this summer. And, you know, it's only been, what, over a decade since the Oilers were a competent-looking team, so maybe this is the year where uh, things finally maybe turn around for them. Yeah, well, the thing is, is when you have players like Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl and even Ryan Newton Hopkins, that's a team that you can say, okay, well, this team can't not be good. But they've somehow found a way to be awful. And I think it's, for one, they lack speed on the wings, which is ironic because the two players that they had, Everly and Hall, is exactly what they needed in that regard. (laughs) But, um, yeah, and then obviously in net, who knows, uh, the the Finnish goaltender performed adequately, I would say, given the circumstances of that defense last year. Overpaid by a country mile. But uh, that's neither here nor there. And Anthony Stolarz, I, I like Stolarz, but again, I, I don't think it was too wise of a decision to go with that much inexperience between the pipes. But we'll see. Maybe Holland has something up his sleeve. Maybe he makes a big pitch to Robin Lehner if he's not re-upped in New York. If I were him, that would be my biggest focal point of concern. Uh, on defense, it, it you know they're they're backstopped by. Um, Andre Sakara and Donnell Nurse, and they're, I guess they're hoping that Evan Bouchard of the London Knights can be a mainstay next year. I think that they've slowly started putting pieces together on that defense that will, it's starting to take form, but you still can't rely on guys like Kleppbaum and Larson to be your top pairing. They'll need Nurse to take that next step, and they'll need Bouchard here sooner rather than later if they really want to be considered a top team in the West. Man, I'm looking at their defense right now. Andre Sakara, Oscar Clefbaum, Adam Larson, Chris Russell, Darnell Nurse, Brandon Manning. <laughs> Brandon Manning. Ugh. Good lord. Well, because they swung that deal for Manning last year and at the same time where they brought in Petrovic, but they 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 treated Petrovic since, didn't they? He's still in the roster, he's a UFA. Oh, this coming okay. summer. Yeah. Well, you know, I uh, a lot of this garbage is left at the feet of Ken Holland on his doorstep, and it's done by his uh, predecessor. But um, I, I, who knows? Maybe they'll go out and try and get like a Jake Gardner. I don't. Maybe a Jacob Truba or a Tyler Myers if they become available. But um, I think uh, for the most part, the the framework on that back end has been laid. It's been built. Now it's just a, a lot about guys like Nurse and Bouchard, like, realizing their potential. Yeah, it's, they, they do have some decent prospects in the system. Yeah, well, that's it. You know, you obviously have Jesse Pugliarvi, who I guess you can't really consider him a prospect anymore. But if I were to say something about Edmonton, yeah, they do have some glaring holes in their lineup, but it, they just have to change that culture. You got to you gotta flip this culture, and it feels like this is almost like the third or fourth rebuild that this team has gone through in the last decade. <laughs> At least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, and you can't even say that, well, now they have a guy as a general manager who has a pedigree like Holland, because they had that when they brought in Peter Chiarelli. Chiarelli had a pedigree. He has just as many cups as Holland. No, that's not fair to say. But in the last <laughs> decade, he has as many cups as Holland. But let's see. Hopefully, Ken Holland still has something left in the tank and he can make it work. Yeah, uh, it's been... 
Yeah, again, the framework is there. They have the prospects. They have Connor freaking McDavid. You know, and it's amazing with a team like him and, and the prospects that they have and the talent that's already on the roster. And they just uh, are struggling to get it done. And Col- uh, Ken Holland has a whole lot to clean up. Left by yeah. Mr. Peter Chiarelli. Yeah. They're going to be really active this offseason, I think. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. But yeah, I, I think the contracts, that's the big thing. Like when you have a guy like Milan Lucic being weighed down by that $6 million for another uh, four or five years, and then you have yeah. these, then you have like these rumors of like him for Luke Erickson, like swapping out one problem for another. <laughs> it's a tough spot to be in. And I think his first year is going to resemble a lot of that of Ron Hexel when he first got to Philadelphia. Man, Ron Hextall should have went to the Oilers. <laughs> Made them sit through another 10 years of draft picks. Mm. Yeah. Well, some other news that has happened. The World Championships wrapped up uh, over the weekend. Finland took gold, Canada was uh, silver, and the Russians took bronze. Obviously, the Finns led by the potential number one or number two draft pick, uh, Capo Kako. And uh, Finland kind of made a miracle run there towards the end. Again, they were led by uh, Kako, who did fall off in point production there towards the end, but was still playing well. Um, Anthony, your thoughts on the uh, World Championships? Well, I, I think going in, everyone had the, the United States pegged in as the far and away favorite. It was well documented that Patrick Kane reached out to a lot of his own peers to recruit and put ice a really good team. But uh, yeah, Finland, I think they only had two players who play in the NHL in the roster, one of them being Yoki Hairu from the uh, Chicago Blackhawks. But man, oh man, it really shows that anything can happen in these international tournaments. I think a lot of star power was missing, especially on uh, the Canadian side. John Tavares had to leave uh, the tournament before it even got officially underway. But yeah, I, I think it's a fun tournament. It's a cool tournament for a lot of the players that don't get to make it into the playoffs year after year. I feel like Shane Doan became the face of this tournament at one point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I've always liked it. Obviously, it's not as it's not best on best like a World Cup or a uh, Olympics if the NHL players are there. But yeah, it was uh, really cool to see an underdog team like Finland take it home. Yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, it, it was the unlikeliness uh, of what they had. I mean, outside of Kaka, there just was not a lot there. Their captain, I believe, is 32. Uh, his name escapes me at the one I've written down. But And the, you know, the goaltenders, which is the Blackhawks prospect, I mean, hey, they won. <laughs> the United States, the uh, the... I, what I watched the United States was just more of a lack of chemistry. They just didn't get it done. You know, the, the players that were accounted on just didn't. Uh, Jack Hughes had a couple assists, three assists in seven games, and his line with Debrinkat and Van Riemsdyk just wasn't producing much. And It just, you know, it goes to show that, you know, you can stack all the talent you want, but sometimes it, you know, these unlikely guys can come through. Uh, what are your thoughts on the uh, tournament there, Julia? Well, I think it was really interesting how Lankinen, the goaltender who's a Hawks prospect, he just played his first season over in North America this past year um, in the ECHL and the AHL. And so he doesn't have a lot of great experience with 
this like these fast paced like bigger body guys and I think that the fact that he was able to perform as well as he did and kind of help his team win was amazing I think it was a really great story um, that Finland won I think Worlds is just really fun and it kind of gives everybody like just a chance to kind of come together almost because everybody just has fun at Worlds. It's not like it's competitive, but it's not like cutthroat and like very aggressive because there are teams like Great Britain and Italy who aren't, you know, as great. But they, I just think it's a really great tournament, though, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And it was, you're both kind of right where it's not like the Olympics. It's not the same thing. You know, there are a lot of guys on here that are, you know, younger and don't quite have the, you know, experience or maybe even the talent to kind of make it. You look at the, uh, some of the defensemen on Team Canada, you know, guys like uh, Damon Severson and Shea Theodore and, you know, guys like Darnell Nurse who probably wouldn't cut it, you know, for the big group and, you know, the real men's Olympic team. But they're here and they got to go out there and kind of experience what it's like. You know, some of these guys probably haven't played uh, together since World Juniors and such um, and such things like that. So it is an interesting thing. One of the major talking points that kind of came out of it, you know, was the fact that Jack Hughes was essentially quiet. He had three assists through seven games. His counterpart, Kako, had six goals and one assist through ten games. Now, I'm not one to base draft picks on one series, but I know some people do. You know, so, oh, man, well, he, you know, Kako, he had the best run lately. Maybe he's the number one. I'm still, I still think it's Hughes. I think he's got it locked in. But, uh, Anthony, do you have any uh, take on who goes one and two this summer? Well, I'm in the same boat as you. I think Hughes will go there if, for whatever reason, if, if for what all else, it's just because he's a centerman. And I think the Devils need that help down the middle. But before this tournament started, I think it was far and away Hughes as the number one, and it wasn't even close. But after this tournament, man, oh, man, has that gap ever shrunk. Kako looks like a guy who can hang with the big boys. He's a lot more physically developed, bigger frame. And as you mentioned, he scored six goals in the tournament. He was a big X factor. While Jack Hughes, he, he really looked like a kid. You know, he shredded the U18 tournament, and then he came here to play against the men, and it really showed is that he's still immature in the physical department. And uh, I think that he's going to have a, hot, a tough time adapting to the NHL next year just in that regard. But, uh, yeah, although I think that um, Hughes will go first just because he's a sentiment, but in terms of immediate impact in the NHL, I think that Kako might have that because he's just more physically developed to the point. Uh, Jack, I completely Jack agree. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I just I think that Hughes is going to go first because the Devils want a centerman. They want someone who's fast like Hughes is. And but I think Kako is more NHL ready. I think that he's more physical of a player. He can hold his own better, and he didn't get stripped of the puck as easily as Hughes did at some points. Um, and I know that this one tournament isn't the only thing to base this off of, but. I think that Hughes goes first, but he might not be ready to play in the NHL. Jack Hughes is 5'10", 166 listed here, and uh, Kako is 6'2", 192. 
So, I mean, he he, he got quite a bit of size on Hughes there. So, I do agree. I, I pretty much with Anthony on this one. I think it's still going to be Hughes, but I think Hacko made it a whole lot more difficult to make that decision. But uh, given that it's the Devils, no matter who they pick, it's guaranteed to be the other one that's better. So... <laughs> I, I think that's what's going to happen. I, I don't know. I the fact that both of them are going to be in the metro is uh, is is sad, but um, you know I, I still think it's used. I, I just think that he's got the pedigree going in, and I think it's going to be hard to convince a team, especially like the Devils, who do need you know as much help as they can get uh, down the middle. It's going to be hard to convince him otherwise, Akako. But should be interesting one to see. Uh, let's see here. Some news coming from the NHL. There's been word that they want to expand video review. After these playoffs, the refs have messed up time after time after time after time. You know, I'm for expanded video review. I, I just don't want... I don't like the excuse that, oh, it's going to slow the game down. Because I don't think it realistically should be that big of a deal. But at what point is it, you know, are you going to review every single play that happens versus the allowance of human error. Now, when you're in Game 7 and Cody Eakin cross-checks Paul Stastny and it's ruled a five-minute major even though it wasn't and it costs them the series, uh, you know, that's one thing to get kind of angry about. You know, the hand pass later on and against uh, in their last series against the Sharks. and there are A lot of these things that just drive me nuts, but, you know, how, you know, as, does adding video review make the NHL better or are you going to allow for human error and say well it happened you know I don't know uh, Anthony do you have any thoughts on the expanded video review yeah well I've, I you know before these playoffs I was against it because I think that there has to be a human element towards it and you know like you're not going to try and change history like the entire NHL is based off of years and years and years of human element and I do think it's a slippery slope in terms of, as you mentioned, you have the Pavelski cross-check by Eakin that is that resulted in a series change, but that was a, that was a blown call. But then, if you insert video review, are they going to start reviewing things like Tory Krug's charge, and then we're going to take time and time and more time to like figure out that like those gray area things? Now, after these playoffs, you obviously have to consider it with how bad the rest have been. It's been exceptionally bad. But I still do think it's a slippery slope because that crew, that, that crew uh, charge that I just mentioned, how long would they review something like that? And that's a gray area. I just think with so many rules being having gray areas that it would become a real bad slippery slope really fast. And the uh, crew hit is a perfect example. Because I've seen people arguing about it on Twitter now for days. You know, how long are they going to sit there and go, well, was it charging? Wasn't it? You know, was it a bad hit? Whatever. I don't know if... I, it comes down to how much control a team can have when it comes down to making video review. You know, are they going to make it just exceptions on penalties or missed penalties or hits? And I, There's more to it than just, you know, installing video review. Uh, Julia? I think that it needs to be there for like the big things like the big the big missed calls that they come out after the game and are like we totally messed that up I think that it needs to be something that maybe is like league and ref oriented rather than like teams challenging because I feel like that could get more into like the oh like at what point is it a delay of game that they're reviewing this play that's like 
controversial or something. Whereas there are some really big plays that are really big penalties that get missed. And I think that those are the ones that need to be reviewed. I think that it needs to be um, like monitored for sure. I don't think that every play needs to be reviewed and I don't, I hope that the NHL wouldn't do that um, with how fast the game is to begin with. But there are some big major missed calls that lead to things like the game completely changing, players getting seriously injured that are going uncalled at the moment. And I think that because of that, there needs to be some sort of video review element. I don't know if you guys heard Brad Marchand, though, what he said. I did read the quote. I don't have it off the top of my head, but he was not for it. Yeah, he's not for it. And Which I, is you know, interesting. Yeah, you know, I wonder how... It, it is interesting to see kind of what the players feel about this. You know, because the NHL, going back to the Pavelski hit, and it's happened a couple other times uh, this season, the NHL apologized for the call on the Pavelski hit that it was a five-minute major and, you know, blew them the series. You know, it, it, now those are the kinds of things. But again, it's kind of hard to determine. It's hard to sit here and say, well, you know, is it the ref's discretion? Is it the team's discretion? You know, is it the missed penalties? Is it the penalties that were called that were questionable? Is it the, you know, it's just all these things that come together that I think is going to make this one hard to change. You know, it's going to take a lot of convincing to get these owners to, uh, to make a big change here. Yeah, well, that's sure. it because there's just so much gray area on every which way. Yeah. Like, well, what plays are you going to review? They installed that that rule a few years ago with the coaches' challenge, and they said, okay, well, it's just offside and goalie interference. But at what point does it stop? Is it going to be every single player's reviewed? Because then at that point, I believe you'd have to have an eye in the sky at every single hockey game. I, I just I, I get the premise of it. And I think that it's been amplified because of the horrible, horrible officiating in these playoffs. But um, yeah, it's uh, I it's I think it's just going to be really tough to hammer out a black and white situation for refs and the league and the teams to instill such expanded review. Well, that's just it. It's not black and white, which makes it so like that's what makes it so hard to yeah. get something so definitive out. Yeah, I mean, what are they going to say? You know, going back to the Belsky one, if you cross-check somebody and then somebody else throws them on their head and they land head first on the ice and bleed out, then, you know, do you call it then? Or, you know, you have to go by specific examples. And that is just, then you're getting into some just messy waters. And it's, I don't think it's going to happen. Well, I, I don't think so either, because this whole notion to instill expanded review is to kill controversy. Yeah. But as we just brought up, if everything was a reviewable, then I guarantee you the Tory Krug thing would have been reviewed until the cows came out. Yeah, they'd still be doing it now. Well, that's it. As you saw, as you said, on, on Twitter and on the internet, people have been debating it nonstop, and we're almost at game two, and people are still talking about it. But it's like, well, that hit, in my opinion, if I were the guy making the judgment call, in, in the regular season, that's a charge. But in the playoffs, it's not. So, because we all know that, like, there are kind of two sets of rules yeah. as far as regular season goes in playoffs. So, how do you make that discretion? That's that's where I'm kind of at. Like, where does it end? Where does it begin? What are the boundaries? Yeah. Too many what is. Yeah, and, and I, then go ahead. 
and then do you go back because there was that play right before the crew hit yeah. that was clearly a penalty he was clearly holding and so then would you go back and call that as well like where what you said where does it end like where where do they draw the line and it's just it's so much again and it has to be so specific too no no i no hits are identical to each other you know, you're not going to have the, you know, Pavelski hit match up with the Krug hit. You know, it's just these hits and these plays and they're annoying and frustrating and they should have some kind of safety net there to make sure things like that don't happen. But coming up with written rules for such instances is going to be impossible. Yeah, well, that well, that's it. It's just I like I get the premise of it, and I like we saw it first at twenty twelve, like that offside dang Briere goal. Oh yeah, and and I get it, but you can't make something perfect. There's always going to be imperfections, which I think makes it because even though there are blown calls in every game, the refs make it up. I think even if it's bad call for bad call and like one after another. I don't think you'll ever lose a game based on it because even on that Pavelski hit, okay, fine, it wasn't a five-minute major, but you did. You could have tried to penalty kill like an NHL team. <laughs> you still had the rest yeah. of the period and all of overtime. You were the team that had a three-one lead in in this uh, series, and it had to come down to overtime. I, I don't know. I, I'm just not the kind of guy to blame the rest. I never have been. I understand that it's been amplified now because of the terribly poor officiating in the playoffs, but uh, I just think they should leave it as is. They've already gone down this road with the coaches' challenge. The only thing I would suggest is maybe just expanding what the coaches can challenge, but beyond that, I don't see why they would uh, expand video review. Or the other solution is the refs just need to be better, and uh, <laughs> they're and especially you brought it up earlier with the changing and what they do. You know the the regular season versus the playoffs. You know I, I get you don't want your playoffs to be ruined by one team having you know five power play goals and the other one get none. But how about you just follow the rule book? Call a penalty a penalty. You know, if you get it wrong, give them a makeup call and move on. I, I think going ticky tack on some of these games and other games when you go in there and everything's legal and then, you know, one bad hit gets called and then it's not fair. You know, it's just, I don't know. These refs just need to be better. They need to be more consistent. Yes. All the way up. The rules need to be rules no matter what, you know. And if they mess up, then it is what it is. But I don't know. Messing, them, messing up on such a grand scale. Time after time in the playoffs, too. This isn't just one or two incidents. This happens every couple games, and it's happened all year. You know, all uh, all playoffs long this year. So, uh, let's move on to some rumors from around the NHL. Uh, rumor was last week that Phil Kessel of the Pittsburgh Penguins was involved in a trade to Minnesota that he vetoed as he did not see them as true competitors. Kessel coming off a twenty-seven goal, eighty-two point campaign. Uh, he's four four games shy of playing in 1,000 in the NHL. You know, I've brought him up as a possible, uh, you know, addition for the Flyers in the offseason. And if that trade was kind of, you know, based in reality, the Kessel for uh, Zucker, it could be something that could match. But overall, the Penguins trading Phil Kessel could potentially be to get Jack Johnson 
off the team. Uh, now, I have heard from that it is not for that reason as much as it is they're looking to shake things up, but uh, Phil Kessel being available, I mean, that could be a huge get for, you know, most teams around the league. Uh, Julia? Yeah, I think that he – well, okay, so he mentioned that he wouldn't mind playing in Arizona, um, which was interesting to me because he's, I guess, close with uh, Tockett. Um, and I feel like that's an interesting team for him to say, especially after he mentioned that he doesn't think Minnesota is really a contender um, because the Coyotes are so inconsistent. Um, but I think that – Phil Kessel could be a game changer for. I'm so sorry about my dog. If you can hear him, um, Phil Kessel can be a game changer for any team. He's a great player, and anybody to to have him on their team would be. It would just change the lineup completely. So I think that if the Penguins get rid of him, somebody's going to be getting very lucky. I brought it up in a tweet uh, that about adding into the Flyers, and I go, you know, and I had somebody go, well, Daniel, if he said no to Minnesota after looking at their future, he's going to say no to the Flyers, you know, but that's not necessarily the case. I think Minnesota's a team that's just kind of stuck in neutral right now. They don't have much of direction. You know, I totally get him going to a team like Arizona or, you know, possibly a fit in the Flyers because their futures are bright. You know, Arizona is starting to come together. They've got plenty of pieces down there, and it's more a matter of, you know, just a matter of time until they kind of all get to the age and capabilities of leading him. And Rick Tockett's a great coach, and I think it would fit well there. I, I think it would be an interesting trade. Again, they have plenty of assets to make it happen. I um, would not like most of those. I would, <laughs> I would not like most of those kids in Pittsburgh because it's going to make them, a, a, you know, a better team for a little bit longer. But, uh, Anthony, you have any thoughts on Phil Castle? Well, I think Kessel's the perfect kind of guy that you bring in when you're about to win the Cup. And I think it's just very important for whatever team that is acquiring him, make sure that he's not going to be your go-to guy. We, we saw two prime examples. When he was in Toronto as the guy, he couldn't he couldn't get done, and he was often, often maligned by the fan base. I'm up here in Canada, so all people did was crap all over him. And although he was still a perennial 30-40 goal scorer, because he's so one-dimensional, his errors were so amplified. But now, or, or how it used to be in Pittsburgh, he was perfectly insulated. Most times he was on that third line, whether that be that HBK line or what have you, he was always behind Crosby and Malkin. He had better matchups. He didn't have to play as many minutes in addition to that. So while I think that he'll help whatever team he goes to at a pretty decent bargain at 6.8 mil as Toronto's still retaining 1.2 million of his salary for three more years, um, I just think whatever team acquires him, just for argument's sake, Arizona, they better hope that the players they already have on that roster are getting it done and they have front men and Kessel's going to come there and just kind of insulate them. Yeah, and that would be the thing with that in Kessel, whoever you are, is he's not the top guy anymore. You know, he just he's not the kind of guy that I would particularly build a team around in the sense of being a one or two. I think he's a great depth. He's a great depth guy, you know, in the upper echelon of depth guys. You know what I mean? You know, he, he again, playing behind Crosby and Malkin, because he had Crosby and Malkin so he could succeed. You know, he's 31 now. 
He'll be 32 right around the time the season starts. So, you know, he's not any younger, but points-wise, he's still doing just fine. He had 92 in 17-18. He had 82 uh, in 18-19. So the output is still there. I'm curious to see where he lands, and I'm curious to see what that trade looks like. wonder if it's going to be straight up. wonder if it is going to be for somebody like Jack Johnson, who uh, Pittsburgh, as far as I heard, uh, the Pittsburgh front office still was okay with how their defense looked this season, which is hilarious. But, yeah, you know, if the trade was involving Zucker, you know, I think there are quite a few teams that could probably uh, a landfill catch and would be a big big middle-of-the-road guy here. Yeah, well, I think a perfect team that, like, I, I just thought this team right away would be Calgary because yeah. it seemed like their offense dried up a bit in the, um, in the playoffs against um, Colorado. And he just seemed, and that's a team that already has their superstars in Monaghan and Johnny Gaudreau and even Matthew Kachuk. And you could just see him slotting on a depth roll, a second or third line alongside a Michael Backlund or Sam Bennett, or even possibly a Winnipeg. Them too, they kind of struggled with depth scoring, especially with Patrick Aline, uh being a ghost for much of the season. He really picked up in the playoffs in a short time. But, uh, yeah, I just think a, te- a well-established team that's just on the brink of being a true top contender but has the bona fide superstars and the anchors up front, that's an ideal fit for Kessel. Yeah, that would be that would be the fit. I, Calgary, I never really thought of Calgary, but that would be, a, be an interesting fit. You know, I think it's working. He needs guys that make him look good and I think Calgary could do that throughout the lineup you can comfortably place him on the third line and still be just fine so that's an interesting addition uh, the last little bit here we want to get to I didn't have it in the notes but Julie and I have both written columns about it and it's been the hot talk of Twitter for the past couple days here Mitch Marner uh, seems to be not taking any crap with his contract he is going to uh, get paid what he wants to get paid and uh as the hometown Toronto kid, a lot of people were thinking that he was going to come in and that Toronto wasn't going to have to pay, you know, another guy $11 million, but uh, they might have to here. <laughs> Marner does not seem like he's going to, uh, to settle. So, uh, Anthony, you've heard anything on uh, Mitch Marner up there in Canada? So, yeah. So, as for Mitch Marner, I really believe that the Marner camp is drawing a line in the sand. It's been well uh, documented now that he's not going to take anything less than $11 million or that is what he's hoping for. As we know, Toronto already has over $22 million locked up in Tavares and Matthews over the next five years. And I think that uh, they were hoping to get Marner for under 10. But the longer this draws out, the longer the speculation of an offer sheet comes. Now remember, the compensation for any salary under $10.6 million, I believe, is two first-round picks, a second-round pick, and a third-round pick. Now, you have to believe that a team would be willing to shell out that as for compensation for Mitch Marner. Um, I don't think he's going to get $11 million in Toronto. I think it's going to be around 10 10 5 But I still stand by the notion that it's going to be really tough for Toronto to lock him up for what he wants and still ice a good team around them because we saw their, their, their needs on defense in the playoffs. And if they lock Marner up to what he's asking or even, even a bit less than what he's asking, they're not going to have a lot of money to go around. They're already going to lose Jake Gardner. So, yeah, Marner's drawing a line in the sand, and it's going to be tough for the Maple Leafs to do anything with him. The uh, 
difference here between compensation. It's a uh, 10.568 million is two firsts, a second, and a third, and anything above 10.568 is four firsts. Uh, oh. Marner is just I, I if you're Toronto, are you going to have three 11 million dollar players on your roster? I mean, you can. But then you have to put, you know, a whole lot of money on a defense that isn't the best. And what do you do long term? You know, they can maybe make this work for a season or two, but I don't know. I I don't know what you do if you're Toronto. You know, do you let somebody offer sheet them and maybe they dip down to the 10-5 so they all have to do two first round picks rather than four and say, oh, we're going to you know, pick them up there. Personally, I don't see an offer sheet happening. I, I just think they're, you know, extinct these days. You know, there hasn't been one since O'Reilly in 2013. There's only been eight since the uh, salary cap in 2005. I don't know if it's going to happen, but, I mean, if there was ever a time between Marner, Point, and, you know, even Line A, if there was ever a time you're going to see an offer sheet come back, it's uh, right now. You got any uh, thoughts, Julia? Yeah, um, I'm not sure Toronto really can afford to do that, to do three over $11 million players. I don't think they can afford it. I don't think they can build a proper team around that with however much cap space they have left. Um, I I know uh, Marner's dad is part of his management. I, I'm almost positive. And I think that the management is really who's holding out. Um on this amount. Um, but I really do think other teams are becoming more interested now that it's been taking so long. I think they know the type of player Marner is. I think they know how good he is. And because it's taking so long, I think it's becoming more and more of a possibility of him not staying in Toronto and him finding somewhere else to go. And I know he said that he wants to stay in Toronto but it doesn't look like he's going to lower his what he thinks he's worth for it, um, which is very interesting in my opinion. Uh, but I think that wherever, whatever happens, he's going to be just as successful as he has been. I don't think he's been – like people were saying this past year he was just successful because he played with Tavares. But if you look at his past years – even in juniors, he's been just as consistent. So I think that he's gonna he's drawing attention now, and I think that you could see an offer sheet for him. I I'm not 100% sure how offer sheets work, but I just think it's a possibility. I mean, his numbers may dip a little bit. I don't think he's you know unless he goes to a team with you know a legitimate players up front and they don't rely. Sp- directly on him I'm probably not gonna hit 94 points again at least not right away but yeah you know I, it's not gonna dip much you know he put up 61 points as rookie year 69 points the following the 94 points this year so you know he can be a 70 point player on the regular and uh it's just this is gonna be an interesting situation I think if Marner is unsigned after the draft and Toronto doesn't make any trades at the draft to clear some cap space you know whether it be a, a cadre or whatever I think he's getting offer sheeted. I think he may... I think he's... I just don't see him coming back to Toronto. I don't see how Toronto can fit Marner in and be competitive as a team carrying three $11 million-plus players. You know, Matthews is 11.6, uh, Tavares is 11, and Marner wants 11. 
you know, good for the kid that he's not going to give in. Because he's just as good as those two. You know, but he just doesn't score the goals. But, you know, guess who's setting up the goals? Mitch Marner. So, you know, I would take him in a heartbeat. And, uh, you know, whether it's an offer sheet or not, I, I think even four first-round picks is, is fine. Uh, you're probably not going to strike on a guy like Mitch Marner with those four picks too often. So uh, that one is probably going to be one of the more interesting stories to follow over the coming weeks uh, and months if it lasts that long. But, uh, yeah, and uh, that is pretty much all we have to talk about tonight. So uh, let's get some plugs on. Uh, Anthony, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at adamarco25 or check us out on the fourth period, thefourthperiod.com or at TFP on Twitter. All right. And Julia? Um, on Twitter, I'm at JK underscore Kender. And that's about all I got. <laughs> well, you can find me at Dan the Flyer Fan. You can find the site at Brotherly Puck. Listen to this show and all the others at Brotherly underscore pod. You can also find us at National Puck and at National Pod Net for the National Podcast Network. Check out those sites. Uh, be back with an angry negative show sometime in the next week or two, and the three of us will be back sometime in the next week or two as well. So, um, yeah, we'll wrap this up. Thank you for listening to the first episode. Everybody, goodbye and good night. <laughs>